Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. Today, we are joined by Bill Dudley. He's a senior research scholar at Princeton University Center for Economic Policy Studies and obviously also former uh, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York uh, based in Princeton, New Jersey. Bill, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to chat with you uh, uh, kind of about your column about inflation. I think the Federal Reserve would like to see some inflation come back into this marketplace, but the, the signs really aren't there. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the first thing is that people are of the view that it's not going to come back. So if you look at the spread between nominal treasuries and inflation-protected treasuries, uh, the spread on a 10-year basis is 1.9%. That's on a CPI basis. So that translates to a uh, you know, core PC deflator of about 1.6. So basically, market participants are saying the Fed's not going to succeed uh, in their goal of pushing inflation, not just back to 2%, but above 2% to offset the misses that we've had in, in recent years. So market participants are very, very confident that inflation is going to stay low uh, indefinitely. And I think that's just uh, a little bit too uh, optimistic an assessment. There are some indicators, though, maybe at odds with that. What about the five-year, five-year forward, which has been creeping up and is at, what, 2 point, nearly 3% at this point? Yeah, we've had some movement in the last week. So people are finally, I think, taking this on board. But there are a number of reasons why I think inflation is a greater risk than what's priced in some markets. Uh, the first is base effects. So last uh, April, March and April, we saw a big decline in the core PC deflator because uh, the onset of the pandemic. When we get to May and those numbers drop out of the year-over-year uh, -year statistics, all of a sudden inflation will look a little bit firmer. Second, I think that uh, as, we, as we get an economic recovery in the second half of the year, which I fully anticipate, I think you're going to see more pricing power in those areas that were hurt most by the pandemic, things like hospitality and leisure, uh, especially given the fact that, that we probably actually are going to have a shortage of capacity in some of those areas, uh, given uh, business failures that have occurred over the intermediate period. Set, third, you know, the other issue, of course, is we know the Fed's going to be very patient. The Fed has basically said they're not going to raise short-term interest rates until, they, until, maximum employment gets, until we get to maximum employment, until we get to 2% inflation. And the Fed is confident inflation is going to go above 2% for some period of time. So the Fed's going to be slow rather than fast. And then uh, I think the final thing that makes me more, more worried about inflation is fiscal policy. Uh, there's a pretty strong consensus developing that, that if the economy is weak, use fiscal policy. There's not a lot of worry anymore about uh, debt sustainability over the medium to longer term. So fiscal policy is a lever that can be used more aggressively uh, than before. If you remember back during the last economic cycle, uh, fiscal policy restraint was one reason why we had a subpar recovery in 2012, 2013, 2014. Well, Bill, just on that last point, and maybe this is just political positioning, um, but we're actually starting to hear some Republicans say, whoa, 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 let's put the brakes on some of this fiscal stimulus that we're talking about. Three trillion uh, is way too big of a number. We're thinking something less than a trillion, for example, just on the discussion of this latest fiscal stimulus. <clears throat> Do you believe that after years of supporting higher and higher spending that the Republicans have any stomach for kind of reining it in? Well, historically, the Republicans have been uh, for fiscal consolidation when Democrats are 
in the White House and not so much when Republicans are in the White House. So uh, I think they'll, I think they'll continue that uh, that pattern. The, the important thing on the fiscal side is it looks like we're going to get another round of, of fiscal stimulus. If this $905 billion proposal goes forward, as, as, as seems more likely than not at this point, that I think is sufficient to provide a bridge to the recovery that we're going to see late spring uh, uh, and early summer. Bill, so we definitely will see price increases in perhaps places like services, which make up about 60% of the overall CPI and 75% of the core measure. So I could see where you would get inflation. But if we have slack in the labour force, which we're likely to have for some time, won't that offset that kind of inflation, at least for the Federal Reserve? Well, I think, it, I think the question is how long is that slack in the labour market actually going to persist? And the other issue, I think, is, you know, the, people talk about the scarring of the economy caused by the pandemic, but the scarring isn't just about, uh, you know, workers being unemployed. It's also about businesses just, that are just going under. So capacity is also suffering. I mean, in my hometown, Cranford, New Jersey, two, two of the major restaurants have gone out of business. So when demand comes back, uh, there's going to be a lot more pricing power for those that, that have survived uh, this, 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 this pandemic. Bill, how do you view the labor market here? We get, you know, week after week, we get this really, really uh, sobering jobless claims. And of course, we had some of the, uh, the jobs data on Friday here. How do you view the, the labor market and the resiliency of the labor market as we come on to the backside of this pandemic, arguably beginning maybe, you know, sometime next year? Well, it's not as good as the employment statistics suggest. For example, looking at the unemployment rate of 6.7%, the only reason it's as low as 6.7% is a whole bunch of people have dropped out of the labor force. You're only counted as unemployed in the United States if you're actively looking for work. Uh, the labor force participation rates dropped by nearly two percentage points since February. So there's a lot more people unemployed than suggested by the current labor market. And that's certainly going to hold uh, inflation back for a while. But I, I do think the recovery in the second half of the year is going to be quite powerful. Uh, once you get people vaccinated, then and the risk of pandemic goes down from a health perspective. Social distancing will end. You'll have an opening up. And, so I, and I think there's a lot of pent-up demand. I mean, you look at the, uh, the savings rate. The savings rate right now is really high, uh, even though we've gone through a very bumpy uh, economy. So it seems to me like there are resources, especially among higher income people, to go out and spend. So, Bill, if you don't mind taking us through it very slowly for some of us who may may, may be, you know, less quick of thought than you, take that restaurant example that you just gave us in your hometown. Two have closed. The others will have pricing power when people come back and start eating out properly. But how long will it take before those businesses or new businesses open to take that pricing power away to employ some of the people that haven't been employed that were in the services sector and that then, you know, contribute to the labor market becoming sort of full again, full employment? Well, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I mean, we've never gone through anything quite like this before. And the burden, of course, has fallen, you know, disproportionately on leisure and hospitality and especially on a lot of small businesses. Uh, You know, if you look at the share of, you know, uh, demand, uh, it, it's, it's gone disproportionately towards larger, uh, large, larger stores, larger businesses. You know, Walmart is able to stay open because they sell, super, you know, sell, 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 sell groceries, uh, while, while smaller, you know, smaller stores that specialize in, in things that Walmart sells maybe, uh, you know, don't, don't have as much, uh, much business. So I think, you know, I think you're right that, uh, you know, there will be, you know, small business creation, but then that's about, you know, mobilizing capital and being credit worthy. And so I think that's going to take some time. 
Hey, Bill, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We appreciate that. Bill uh, Dudley, former New York Fed president and senior researcher at Princeton University. And Vani, that's a big, big issue, I think, for some of these small businesses, The, you know, the how quickly they can come back. Or maybe a new entrepreneur comes in and, and, and starts a new restaurant in that old, you know, in old space. Well, that's just it. And, you know, to me, in a, some senses, that might be the critical question. How long does that take? Because that's when we're going to see those indicators move around, the inflation indicator, the employment indicator, and it's how they all sort of interact that, you know, decides whether we suffer from too much inflation or whether the Fed needs to do something or whether the Fed folds back and so on. So many questions to resolve. That was Bill Dudley, former Fed Reserve, New York. The $65 billion logistics company DHL has just released its annual Global Connectedness Index, which it does in conjunction with NYU Stern School of Business. And the report highlights key developments in international flows of capital, trade, information and people. Joining us now with the conclusion from the report that globalization is far from dead is the CEO for the Americas of DHL Express Americas, Mike Para. And thanks for joining, Mike. So, Mike, globalization may not be dead, according to the report, but what are the flows showing us? Are we dealing with other countries as much as we did at peak globalization? Well, good morning, uh, Bonnie and Paul, and thanks for having us. Yeah, I mean, the report in itself, uh, there, there weren't big surprises. Uh, obviously, people flows, if you've seen the report, people flows suffered an unprecedented decline in 2020. We expected that based on what was happening during the pandemic. Um, capital flows were hit a bit harder, but they are rebounding. Um, and that is positive, as you know, with governments and central banks having stabilized the markets and helping to do that. Uh, But the one that came out that we're actually excited about is international trade. It's rebounded uh, strongly. And people ask us all the time, uh, is this a U-shape, an Uh, L-shape? It's a a rather narrow V-shape recovery that we have seen. Um, Our lowest point at DHL this year was in April. Uh, if you think about when we found out about the pandemic uh, in Wuhan and where it started, we started flowing uh, from the U.S. to China, PPE equipment. Uh, and then it turned around in March, April, and you started to see PPE equipment that started to flow uh, from China to the world uh, into the United States. Uh, so really uh, what we've seen is Uh, The world remains connected. Uh, International trade uh, is key and globalization has been more resilient uh, than expected. So it's far away from coming to a standstill. Yeah, Mike, that's interesting to, to, to hear your perspective because folks at DHL, obviously, just have a, a bird's eye view of kind of global trade here. One of the concerns that some folks have is uh, the trade war between the U.S. And, and China and not so much the tariffs and, and maybe the method in which the Trump administration carried out some of its trade policies with China, with tariffs and so on, but just the general belief that the world needs to get tougher with China. Does that uh, throw some roadblocks into the globalization story at all? I would say at the beginning, uh, Paul, I I think there was a lot of speculation, uh, a lot of anecdotes uh, that went out. There there is always going to be a change in the world, especially for us when we're dealing in 220 countries and territories globally. 
what we have seen is China continues to be uh, one of our biggest trade lanes uh, for us at DHL, China-U.S. and AP-U.S. I think when you take a look at it, uh, they're firing in all cylinders right now, China yep. and Asia-Pacific to Europe and to the United States. So uh, what I would say is, uh, you know, the things that took place this past year, whether it be the U.S., MCA deal and the revision of NAFTA, which, by the way, was needed. Some form of revision was needed. Uh, but there are biggest trading partners now as well. Uh, and China, there needed to be uh, a reset from that perspective as well. But there's been no slowing down at all. Mike, what have you done in terms of changing routes, reprioritizing routes, putting staff on certain routes and so on in order to deal with the changes the last year or two? Yeah, it's, uh, thank you for that. Um, we've been in peak season, uh, as I said, since early June. And uh, as a result of that, we've been adding jobs. So we took a decision in the month of March that we would not furlough one single employee. Uh, and all we've been doing is adding jobs. So we're over 3,000 new added jobs and growing. Uh, in the United States, as an example, over 6,000 when you take into account Canada uh, and Mexico, we've added additional capacity as a, redu- as a result of reduction in airline capacity. Uh, and that is coming back slow, as you can imagine. Some of the recent announcement of further restriction, further lockdown from a commercial airline perspective, we had to supplement that with additional capacity in the air. So we've added uh, additional flights out of Asia, China, into Europe and into the United States, intra-United States, into Canada into Mexico, uh, down south into Central South America. Uh, And that has been ongoing for us uh, really since the month of June. Uh, And again, don't see that slowing down anytime soon. Uh, And really, we've seen uh, growth in e-commerce. So more and more people, maybe like yourselves, I don't know about yourselves, but my wife shops everything online. Uh, have gone to shopping online. You, you saw the results of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, some of the biggest ever online shopping numbers uh, in the history of the United States. We saw greater than a 50% wow. growth uh, in a very short period of time. And I get asked, I got asked the other day, Mike, is this going to slow down? Uh, I don't see it slowing down. And we basically saw 10 years of e-commerce in, in a, in a six-month period of time. Wow. Yeah, just extraordinary how consumer behaviors change. E-commerce has just been accelerated. I'm sure you see that uh, clearer than just about anyone. Mike Parra, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Mike Parra, Chief Executive Officer uh, for the Americas for DHL Express. America's joining us on the phone from Plantation, Florida. Just extraordinary there seeing the recovery uh, f- uh, you know, in Asia, in China uh, more specifically, uh, and then a broad recovery in terms of uh, traffic just across the board. Amazing. We just got word that the call between Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the EU's von der Leyen has finished. Desperate to know what actually happened because this was the call during which talks could collapse or they could actually find a solution. So let's bring in Therese Raphael to let us know what she knows. Therese is Bloomberg Opinion Editor and is based in London. Therese, do we know anything more about the call except that it's over? Yeah, I'm sorry to say we don't know. Um, we don't have any detailed readout of that call. It was a crucial one, as you said, because uh, the talks are at an impasse. This week is considered, you know, 
if not the last week, then pretty close to it, given the European Council meet on Thursday um, and uh, the UK is due to leave its transition period at the end of the month. And there's a lot that needs to happen before that in terms of legally scrubbing and translating and getting approval for any deal. Um, there needs to be a political solution at this point. I think that much is clear. And that's why we have uh, Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, speaking directly. Now, whether they can unlock things. I think we're unlikely to hear um, the announcement of a deal, for example, tonight. But what we I think what what everyone is waiting to hear is whether they're going to keep talking at least another couple of days. Therese, talk to us about fishing. Why is fishing such a big thing? I just don't get it. When I read headlines of thousands of jobs, finance jobs leaving London, billions of dollars of capital leaving. OK, I get that's an issue. But fishing? Yeah, it's it's actually much simpler than it sounds. Uh, the whole, uh, you know, Brexit was was fought on the uh, one very basic central idea, and that is that Britain would take control of its borders, its laws, its money. And when you look at the map of Britain, right, it's an island, and there's water, and and there's fish in that water, and to you know to 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 the common person's mind, well, if we control our borders, we also control our water, and why should the EU have the automatic right to fish, uh, to, to claim a, you know, a very large share of the fish in British water? So that's, that's the simple assertion that the UK makes. It's not so simple in reality because um, EU fishermen have been fishing those waters for you know, generations and more. Uh, the fish are spawned in EU water, some of them, and then mature and are <laughs> caught in British waters. It's very complicated. Oh, but most of what <laughs> Britain catches, it sells into the EU. So uh, it's a very, it's one of these small issues that has the potential to blow things up. That said, the, the word out over the weekend was that they were pretty close to agreeing a deal on fish and that things were really hung up over these uh, what are called level playing field issues, you know, uh, state aid, subsidies for industry, labor, and environmental standards and that sort of thing. And those are pretty, um, you know, pretty important too to Boris Johnson and his party because they signify how much the UK can diverge from the rest of Europe, which is, again, another you know, uh, fundamental reason why they're leaving the EU. But this fisheries issue, Therese, it's important on its own, but it's also sort of symbolic of the whole thing, right? Because it will decide what stance either parties take on things like creep, mission creep, and, and what gets decided for the past versus what gets decided for the future in terms of what companies can do. The Europeans don't want the British to have the right to sort of change mandates over time, right? Yes, yeah, so that's that's the level playing field side of this, and it, it's really stuck because the EU, from the EU's perspective, what they don't want is a is a you know, medium to large size economy right on their doorstep, having the ability to undercut European companies in all sorts of ways and yet having access to EU markets. So their negotiating position is quite clear. Uh, if you want access to the single market, uh, which is a zero tariff, zero quota deal, then you need to agree not to undercut European um, countries uh, with, with through uh, regulations and different standards on labor markets, for example. Um, and the UK's position is, well, we've left the single market. We've left the EU. Why should we follow your rules still? Um, we've left for the very purpose of diverging. So that has created you know, the impasse. And 
as with all of these things, there is a solution, but it would require concessions and political will, and that's what we haven't seen up to now. We haven't seen either side being willing to give enough to get to a deal. So, Therese, it's 2020, so it's fair to assume by some that no deal will be reached. If there's a kind of a a no deal here at this last minute, what does crashing out of the EU at year end really mean? Well, the first thing it means is that there are um, a whole load of tariffs that come into play. So right now, there's free movement of goods, services, capital labor. That's what the single market means. Suddenly, you have tariffs. So, for example, um, sheep meat. The EU, uh, about 30% of uh, the UK sheep meat goes into EU markets, and tariffs would um, add about, I, I think it's something like 60% ad valorem you know, per year on that. And there's a whole host of tariffs. It, it would make British farming... Um, it would, it would price it out of the European market. It would have a huge impact on the automotive sector because of all of the uh, input, the intermediate goods, the supply chain that involves EU parts. It also means a whole lot of non-tariff barriers. And by the way, this happens even if there's a deal. So we, we tend to think of a deal as kind of, you know, releasing um, all of the pressure that's built up. But even with a deal, we see a lot of non-tariff barriers. And those are things like customs checks, rules of origin. Where did this product originate from? How do you certify that? Uh, Food safety standards and those kinds of certification. For a British citizen who wants to take their dog to Provence in the summer, you will need a special pet passport. You'll need to get a vet to certify it. All of these things become more complicated. If you have a second home, in the south of France or Spain, you will only be able to use it for, I think it's 90 days in a 180-day period, um, whereas now you can spend as much time as you want there. So this is all sorts of implications. Some of them are, you know, seem quite, you know, sort of small hassles and others are, are quite significant. Uh, but we're talking about, you know, potentially a 6% loss of GDP compared to staying in the EU, uh, GDP growth compared to what it would be staying in the EU, according to the Office of Budget Responsibility. So it's, it's, it's significant whether Britons yep. will feel it from day one. Um, that remains to be seen. But I think it's, it's a sea change on a lot of levels. And no deal, most of all, means that the relationship between Britain and its, its closest trading partner, its geographic neighbor um, are put on, on very sort of, yeah. um, you know, uh, the, the, that's a, you know, not, not very a good place amicable to be. terms. <laughs> yeah, not <laughs> a good place ice, to as be. It were. Yeah, terrible place. Boy, Therese, I remember when we used to speak to you on a daily basis pre-pandemic, but uh, it looks like we're finally getting to the short strokes here for Brexit, uh, win or lose. Uh, Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion, editor covering the politics and economics of Europe, joining us on a Brexit update. Just looking at the uh, DXY spot dollar index trading right now at about 90 spot 75. That's down about 10% uh, from just March here as we think about the Federal Reserve and uh, Fed Chairman Powell talking about lower rates for longer. Let's get a sense of what's going on in the currency markets uh, relative to the dollar. We welcome Wolfgang Koster, Senior Strategy Officer for Kyriba. Uh, Wolfgang, thanks so much for joining us here. So we have had this pullback in the dollar. And again, some are calling for maybe some continued weakness. What are your thoughts? My thoughts, good morning, everybody. Um, my thoughts are that um, while we've had some weakening here and certainly significant, the the bigger issue for corporations is really the volatility. Uh, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. We all know that. 
We've had some, we've seen this continuous strength. We see some reprieve there. Clear with all the global economic things that are going on that we're going to continue to see one thing, which is volatility. And the problem with the volatility is that it doesn't just happen on day one and day 90 of a quarter. It happens every single day. And there are lots of corporations who, if they're negatively impacted by foreign exchange, it impacts their cash. And it's all about liquidity right now, as we all know. So what we're helping companies with is trying to make that uh, as agnostic as possible and not worry about whether dollars going up or down, but reality, run their business as if it was a constant dollar business. Yeah, just for context, let's let everybody know that the dollar index today is at 90.75, 90.75, this, you know, thanks to, you know, factors beyond the dollar's control as well, of course, like euro strength and, uh, I mean, not the British pound, certainly, because that's been weakening too. So, Wolfgang, I know you're particularly concerned about Airbnb's currency problem. What does the likes of Airbnb that's dealing with all sorts of currencies all the time do? So what companies like that should do is really understand where all their exposures come from and then manage it uh, to a point that it becomes immaterial. Lots of companies around the world do that today. It looks like in the, uh, the statements from Airbnb that they recognize they have an issue. They, they actually mentioned in their opening documents their currency 69 times. They're in 40 countries. Um, they mentioned euro and sterling as their two largest exposures, which is a little bit offsetting right now. But overall, what, what, what investors will be looking at is how they actually manage this. And what they're showing in their 2020 results so far is a $63 million hit due to foreign exchange. That's $63 million worth of cash that they do not have. And that is over 10% of their overall net losses. So they would have 10% le- less losses if they'd managed that uh, to a level where it becomes immaterial. And lots of companies, as I said, like the Googles of the world and others who have the same problem, manage this. But just to follow, if you don't mind, are they not hedging? Uh, it looks like they're doing some hedging, uh, but it doesn't seem to be as effective as it could be. So they look like they're doing, from what they're saying, they are using the product to partially manage this. How exactly they're doing it, don't know. But what I do know is that they have that they have very material losses that they shouldn't be having. So Wolfgang, over the last, let's call it 20, 30, 40 years, as the global economy, global economy has become much more global uh, and internationalism has uh, you know, increased. From your perspective, how are companies today managing their currency exposure risks? It still seems like when I listen to earnings calls, I hear big, big numbers of currency swings, hits and or gains to their earnings. Yeah, so that's absolutely correct. Unfortunately, because we try to help companies make sure that that doesn't happen, we uh, we do actually a quarterly report where we do where last quarter we had losses of in 800 uh, North American companies uh, exceeding 17 billion dollars, which is a lot of money. So you have to answer your question, you have two camps. You have the camps of companies who really understand it, understand their exposure, and actually fully automate that management today it is automatable it is and it is not expensive to do and especially relative to the losses that that we're seeing companies have and then you see the ones who kind of think that this is a, a zero-sum game and fact is it is not a zero-sum game you may have ups, you may have downs but they hit you every single day during your business and you may well be losing lots of money in times when you need it and so during for example this these tough times uh, does is it really good for Airbnb to lose another sixty million dollars due to this? I think not. 
and it's not necessary to do. Now, what's impressive about Airbnb is still they're doing a great job through these through this economy, quite frankly, still having some nice revenues of $2.5 billion. So fundamentally, they have a lot of things going for, for them, but the financial risk management looks like it's in debt. They unfortunately are a little bit more in the camp of uh, could improve. All right then. Well, that's uh, that's telling them, Wolfgang. Let us know if they if they get back to you and put a strategy in place. We'd love to hear about it. Wolfgang Acosta is senior strategy officer at Kai Reba, based there in downtown New York, New York Plaza. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.